today on Understanding Immigration, DACA. It shouldn't be such a controversial topic because the president can only act unilaterally in areas where Congress delegates that power. And I'm not really sure where this sense of entitlement from the DACA population comes from, because if you think about it, they've already benefited from eight years of deferment from removal. They've been given work authorization and they've also been able to collect paychecks for their work in the country. There's nothing more permanent than deferred action, whether it's TPS or whether it's DACA. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. I'm Matthew Tregesser from FAIR's communications team, and I'm joined as always by Preston Hennekins from our lobbying team and Spencer Rayleigh from our research team. For those listening to this podcast for the first time, this is a series that seeks to educate listeners on a wide variety of important and high-profile topics revolving around the immigration issue in the United States today. We break down complex topics into plain terms. Today marks our seventh episode in this podcast series, and we're still recording remotely due to the COVID-19 outbreak, but I'd say given the circumstances, it's still been a great series. But anyways, today we are still excited to bring you a jam-packed episode, and we'll be discussing Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or otherwise known as DACA. We'll discuss what this program exactly is, how it originated, and its effects on the nation today. Preston, let me start out with you first. What exactly is DACA and when did it originate? So DACA is a program that uh, then-President Obama uh, pretty much announced and then just decreed, uh, which gives deportation relief and work permits uh, to children who were brought into the United States uh, illegally uh, before their 16th birthdays. That was kind of the general overview of it. And to kind of set the scene for the announcement of DACA, which was in June 2012, uh, for most of President Obama's first term, there had been numerous immigration battles on Capitol Hill. And as late as March 2011 and May 2011, President Obama himself was saying that he could not pass immigration law through the Oval Office by himself. In fact, one of his quotes was, I can't just bypass Congress and change the immigration law myself. That's not how a democracy works. Um, lo and behold, he then decides uh, that he does have the power to do this um, roughly a year later. And on June 15th, 2012, he announces in the Rose Garden deferred action for childhood arrivals, which there were about... 800,000 uh, to 600,000 people who applied for it. And to be eligible for this program, you had to have entered the U.S. illegally before your 16th birthday. You had to have lived continuously in the United States um, since June 15th, 2007. Um, so you couldn't you know, be living in Mexico and then come back to the U.S. and apply for DACA. But there was no real right. way to prove that. Um, you had to be under age 31 on the announcement date. And you had to be enrolled in school, you had to have completed high school, or you had to have served in the military, uh, and you could not have been convicted of a felony uh, or three or more misdemeanors. So those were the general guidelines for DACA. And mm -hmm. as I said earlier, there were about 800,000 people initially who applied for it. Um, and now there's between, you know, roughly 700 to 600,000 people um, who still have DACA status to this day. All right. Well, thanks for that pretty good overview. I think that it sums up what the program is and what how it operates today. But 
Let me ask you, Spencer, why has there been so much opposition to the program? You know, you look at a lot of polls and it seems like the country is divided on whether it should be terminated or not. Well, yeah. Well, first of all, there's a very big difference between what it's being presented as and what DACA actually is. In fact, if you wanted, you could probably replace the C in DACA with another A and call it Deferred Action for Adult Arrivals or Adult Aliens. And really, that's because the advocates of DACA want us to get this picture of these kind of special, poor, highly intelligent children who are being heartlessly deported to their parents' home country and doomed to a life of homelessness in a country they don't know. And honestly, this couldn't be any further from the truth. Mm -hmm. In fact, the overwhelming majority of those that are applying that applied for DACA are adults that are now in their 20s and 30s. And the idea that they're all valedictorians with perfect records isn't true either. In fact, at about the five-year mark of the program, over 2,000 individuals had their status terminated because they were convicted of crimes ranging anywhere from alien smuggling to sexual assault. So, again, when these things come out, it, it, it tells Americans that the people that are truly applying for DACA aren't necessarily those that are, you know, like those that are being presented as. Additionally, as Preston noted, one of the original requirements was to complete a certain level of education. However, under the Obama administration, that requirement was often dismissed or passed over or some sort of waiver was put in place for that to the point now that 24% of DACA of the DACA eligible population could be categorized as functionally illiterate in English, meaning they can't specific, uh, efficiently speak or read the language, and 46% only have basic English skills. This is coming from a study from the Center for Immigration Studies. Mm -hmm. And other surveys have found that only about 10 to 15% of DACA recipients ever obtained a bachelor degree or a higher degree than that, which only comes out to about a third of the rate for native-born Americans. And to pile on, 20% don't even hold a high school degree, compared to about 10% for Americans. So, I mean, kind of contrary to this popular belief that, you know, we are making sure that we are holding the, you know, only the highest quality of legal aliens that we don't want to lose, we're seeing more and more that that's not necessarily the case. And in other words, we're just dismissing an illegal, you know, these people who are here illegally and it's kind of hard to necessarily find the positive benefits for while we're doing that. Right. And I, you know, coming from a media perspective, because I look at it every single day on immigration and on, you know, the DACA recipients specifically, you know, over the years since 2012, the mainstream media has only depicted this group as, as you said, you know, these young immigrant children who are uh, the best of the best and that it would be unjust to uh, not grant them an amnesty. And, you know, they've kind of had this narrative, the mainstream media, to persuade audiences that DACA is the number one group right now that needs amnesty. And in recent months, uh, the mainstream media has portrayed these recipients, um, especially during the coronavirus news, as essential workers and medical workers in the fight against the disease. Um, in fact, the Center for American Progress, I know they're like completely opposite of what we advocate for, but they claim in their recent analysis on DACA medical workers that there are 29,000 of them. 
and that they're vital for the fight against coronavirus. And it would be unfair for the Trump administration and for the Supreme Court to terminate the program. And, you know, this argument has been used by Washington Post, CBS News, all the corporate media outlets. But let me give you guys a few numbers here to put things in better perspective. So of that 29,000 figure that the Center for American Progress uh, writes in their analysis, that only represents 0.2%, 0.2% of the nation's 14.8 million healthcare workers. And this is based on 2018 Census Bureau data. So that's less than 1%. So I, I think the argument that they are vital in the fight against coronavirus is just misleading. Um, and then the Bureau of Labor Statistics, this is even a better figure to know. They said in the last month that 1.4 million jobs in healthcare industries were lost by Americans. So in theory, these people could be replacing the DACA healthcare workers should they be removed uh, from the country. Um, so the point I'm trying to make here is that these DACA recipients make a small fraction of the nation's healthcare industry. And it's you know, I'm not sure why the mainstream media is depicting them otherwise. And Matthew, that's a great point you bring up. And another point that I wanted to say is that that, you know, 29,000 figure uh, out of the 700,000 roughly active DACA recipients, that's barely over 4% of that entire population. If we're to believe um, USCIS's estimate in August 2018. Uh, so, you know, to claim that we're going to give, you know, certain protections or a permanent path to citizenship for 700,000 people based off the achievements, uh, you know, and noble achievements, you know, that no one's denying that of, of 4% right. uh, is pretty remarkable. And I think it definitely skews the narrative quite a bit. Yeah. Right. The argument, the argument being made here is that at least in these recent articles is that they're vital to combating COVID-19. And honestly, that entire number that you quoted, Matthew, only a small percent of that number, which is only a minute percentage of the total number of DACA recipients, but only a small percentage of that number are going to be working directly to COVID with COVID-19 anyways. So, I mean, you're right. talking essentially a number that rounds out to zero and trying to use that as an excuse to create a massive amnesty. Right. And it's interesting you bring that up because I looked at the the analysis from CAP further, and they were including positions um, that were not really dealing with coronavirus at all, including uh, massage therapists, vets, caretakers. I mean, I mean, those are definitely those are positions that are honorable in their own ways, but it's not directly related to coronavirus. So, well, yeah, as and you said, when you look when you look at positions like massage therapy, for example, that's a position that isn't even necessarily deemed essential right now. So right. not only are they not working with COVID-19, they're adding to the uh, already uh, much too high unemployment rate in the United States as a result of this pandemic. And, and I, I want to point out, too, you know, Matthew, you probably see this quite a bit encountering me the media narrative surrounding DACA. But all too often, it seems like there's a lot of anecdotal evidence being used when it comes to extraordinary DACA recipients, you know, the DACA recipient who went to college and then went to med school and is now a doctor on the front lines. But that's only one person. And by and large, the evidence shows that most DACA recipients are frankly just pretty average um, and right. particularly pretty average for, you know, kind of, a, 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 you know, similar to the picture of most unskilled labor in this country to begin with. 
There are obviously a few very spectacular and very extraordinary DACA recipients, um, but to use the anecdotal evidence of a handful um, or even a few hundred DACA recipients is, is just not giving us a, a true picture of this population when it comes to yeah. public policy. Yeah, exactly. And when you when you look at that, you know, just a handful of of you know extraordinary individuals and a lot of average individuals. We have to remember we're not we're, we're comparing this to a large you know to millions of Americans, especially in a time like this with the COVID nineteen pandemic, that need every chance they can get to succeed. But now let's just let's just throw the pandemic out the window for a little bit and you know look at life in two thousand nineteen if you want if you want to put it that way. There are there are such a limited number of opportunities for highly qualified students to go to top tier universities or to get their hands on a scholarship or grant money, we can find so many Americans, uh, especially those from less than perfect backgrounds that deserve those spots in universities that have earned those scholarships. It's just disappointing to see so many pushing for these spots to go to a demographic that's not even supposed to be in the United States and just right. completely dismissing and overlooking the the hundreds of thousands, the millions of Americans that better deserve that recognition and that opportunity. Right. And I'm not really sure where this sense of entitlement from the DACA population comes from, because if you think about it, they've already benefited from eight years of deferment from removal. They've been given work authorization and they've also been able to collect paychecks for their work in the country. And so, you know, in a sense, they, they've already been rewarded when the alternative could be, you know, immediate deportation. And so I, I'm not sure. I mean, granted, the, the frontline healthcare work is something that many of us can't do. And it's very honorable work, especially in a pandemic like this. But merely doing the job that they signed up for while taking advantage of this program should not result in, in an automatic amnesty. Right. And Matthew, you know, that's a that's a great point to bring up with other programs that are similar to this, that the Obama administration uh, kind of used as legal background when they announced this. And the most egregious of these are temporary protected status and deferred um, enforced departure, but, you know, which are used for, uh, you know, different groups, uh, different classes of aliens from certain nationalities, but there's nothing more permanent than deferred action, whether it's mm -hmm. TPS or whether it's DACA, because at the end of the day, it's going to, it keeps getting, you know, the can keeps getting kicked down the road and lawmakers, frankly, are, are too afraid to act on it. Um, when, you know, these are supposed to be temporary programs, um, if they're even constitutional to begin with. Right. And I, I think I want to circle back here, uh, regarding the Supreme court, uh, ruling. So, for our listeners out there, uh, within the next month, by June, uh, the Supreme Court is ruling uh, on DACA, not the um, constitutionality of the program, but whether the Trump administration has the authority to end an administration program implemented by the Obama administration. So it's answering uh, at least one part of a two-part question surrounding uh, the DACA program, but it will obviously have huge implications. And it's expected that with the conservative majority in the court that they'll rule in favor of the Trump administration. But if you're interested in, in the, the ruling of how the Supreme Court rules on DACA, turn, tune into the media uh, this next month because it will be covered 
significantly and we should expect a decision a decision uh no later than june yeah and on that i mean we can dive in a little bit just regarding the legality of of daca as it is preston mentioned near the beginning of this podcast uh, one of president obama's own quotes suggesting that it was an illegal executive it would be an illegal executive action he also said in march 2011 that you know with respect to the notion that i can just suspend deportations through executive orders that's just not the case and he responded in october 2010 to demands that he implement you know some sort of uh mass amnesty by saying i am not a king i cannot just do these things by myself right and Kind of in conjunction with DACA, he put together the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans, also called DAPA, Mm -hmm. which is largely the same thing. It allowed illegal aliens to stay in the United States so long as they meet certain criteria. In this case, it would have been having a child in the United States that had some sort of legal status. And this was ruled unconstitutional district court. The U.S. Court of Appeals agreed and in SCOTUS, it ended up tied in the Supreme Court, it tied 4-4 due to the death of, of Scalia, which left the lower blocks in pit place, meaning that DAPA at this point remains illegal. And so if DAPA is illegal, it would only make sense that DACA, which is a very similar program, would also be illegal and unconstitutional. And really, it, it just it shouldn't be such a controversial topic. Because the president can only act unilaterally in areas where Congress delegates that power, such as instituting immigration pauses to classes of migrants that are deemed not to serve the interests of the United States. Congress has specifically delegated that power to the president, but they did not ever delegate to the president the power to suspend duly passed legislation. I mean, in the simplest terms, that would make him a dictator who wields absolute power, which goes against everything that our republic stands for. Right. Right. And this followed, again, years of failed efforts by senators and representatives alike to pass some form of this bill in Congress. It frankly was not popular enough to get through both houses of Congress and then get to the president's desk. That's the will of the American people. And President Obama took it upon himself um, to to do this in by the stroke of a pen, despite repeated failures in either the Senate or the House to pass a legislative form of this kind of action. And it really this really just goes to show the hypocrisy of the mass immigration lobby. If you think about it, one of their biggest complaints with some of the executive actions taken by the Trump administration is that, oh, this should be taken care of through Congress, even though Trump was acting in a way where Congress has has explicitly delegated that power to the executive branch. But then they turn around and argue about the importance of protecting DACA, which by their own logic in attacking the executive orders by the Trump administration should be an illegal act. Right. And I'd also like to point out, even let's say the Supreme Court um, surprises the Trump administration and rules that it can't terminate the program and it's kept in place. And, you know, down the road, it's lead, it leads to some type of amnesty for whether the, the DACA healthcare workers or the entire DACA population. Don't you guys think that that would create migration surges again at our Southern border at a time where it's finally 
on a several, several month decline. Um, and it's relatively quiet for this time of the year. I know we have other immigration and border restrictions in place, but um, if, if migrants can see, hey, if I come here illegally and I work in one of these industries, I'm, I'm probably going to get an amnesty. So I'm going to come up and, you know, see if I can get that same benefit. And I think in 1986, we saw this under uh, the Reagan amnesty. Um, but I think granting any type of amnesty is just going to encourage future waves of illegal immigration. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's especially true if you're just adding it as another restriction that we're taking off of the immigration system. I mean, there 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 could arguably be some form where it might be in the best interests of American citizens if you trade it off DACA for something else. We've seen that used somewhat as a bargaining chip, but there is no situation where you want to just pass this as a standalone item. You at least need to get something significant in return in order to disincentivize future illegal immigration, such as ending chain migration categories that exist in current law or mandating E-Verify, securing the border. There's a lot of things you could do to offset the uh, impending mass surge of immigration at the border if DACA were to be passed. But Ideally, you wouldn't have to get to that point in the first place. And a good point to bring up kind of to the tail end of your argument, Spencer, also, is that, you know, there were some of these negotiations going on in 2017, and it always kind of fell to pieces because the sides couldn't even agree on what they were arguing over. Uh, For instance, the Republicans had a very strong bill uh, under Bob Goodlatte, um, former Representative Bob Goodlatte in the House, which would essentially just codify DACA as it is, which is a non-immigrant visa, indefinitely renewable, but there was no path to citizenship, but they kept their work authorization and they kept, you know, their legal status in the country. So they'd essentially be just kind of a one-time special class of non-immigrant workers um, who could, as long as they didn't commit felonies and, you know, stayed stayed out of trouble, they were going to be able to live the rest of their lives in the U.S. And their children, grandchildren would all be U.S. citizens. That was kind of the deal that the Republicans envisioned. And it was only eligible for people that are that had active DACA status. The Democrats, on the other hand, said, no, we want this to include new classes of people who didn't, who were, who were too lazy to apply for DACA when it happened in the first place. So there were numbers anywhere from two to 2.3 million people who could have been, you know, included in some of the Democratic proposals in 2017. And I imagine there would be similar issues if that was debated today where on one hand you would have some lawmakers pushing a very limited fix where you would you would fix the status for the people who have it now who are in limbo because of president obama's actions and because of president trump's actions and on the other side you would have people pushing in a huge expansion that would that would cover people who never b- bothered to apply for daca in the first place or people who fell out of DACA because they committed crimes or didn't renew it. So that's really, I think, a hard line that needs to be drawn is that when we talk about fixing DACA, we're not talking about fixing, in quotation mark, all dreamers. We're talking about fixing the status for this 700,000 person population, which if we're going to give them green cards, that's almost an entire year of 
legal immigration to this country. That is an enormous giveaway. And like you said, Spencer, you have to have something in exchange for that that's proportional. And a lot of things that have been brought up in an effort to kind of stem future illegal immigration is something like mandatory E-Verify, which I think to any rational person seems like a very fair trade for 700,000 green cards for previous illegal aliens. And let me just add one thing there. It's really important that any trade-off take effect before whatever the amnesty that's being proposed is codified. Ronald Reagan learned the hard way <laughs> that you do not offer an amnesty before you get the other things put in place that would deter future illegal immigration. Right. They have to come simultaneously. You can't have mm -hmm. the amnesty first and then keep deferring the enforcement provisions of the law, which is exactly like you said, because another Congress will come up and say, oh, well, this this sounds too mean. We're going to, you know, we're not going to actually do this and we're going to defer it for another two years. And the next thing you know, two years becomes 30 years. Right. And I, and I was also going to add, you know, in terms of having, you know, making some kind of deal with the Democrats and what I'd like to see in an exchange is more funding and resources for our interior enforcement. I mean, I one figure really struck out to me recently was that in 2018, ICE deported 95,000 illegal aliens from the country, but that's out of the 14 million illegal aliens residing in our country today. So that's, again, less than 1% of people are being deported. And a large part of me believes that it's just simply the number is so low is because they don't have the resources, the funding, the bandwidth to be as enforceful as they should be. And I think that whether, again, it's funding, just more personnel, I would want that in some kind of package if there would ever be some kind of deal with Democrats. You're right. And that, that also has to, I think, accompany a culture change um, within ICE as well. You know, for so long, ICE has been dedicated, especially in the immigration enforcement aspect of ICE, has been so dedicated to stopping criminal aliens and illegal immigration, you know, within like 200 miles of the border, which, which is obviously necessary, but worksite enforcement has completely gone by the wayside. And that's, you know, that sends, you know, a lot of messages, not, you know, not only to illegal aliens, but to people who employ them. Because if you know that ICE is not performing works, worksite enforcement, you're not going to be scared about hiring illegal aliens, which is against the law. Whereas if ICE dedicated a significant portion of their resources and efforts to cracking down on employers who hire illegal aliens, that's going to, I think, have really positive effects for immigration enforcement down the road. Yeah, you're, you're totally spot on. One thing that I wanted to bring up was this question of, you know, after DACA, what happens next? You know, how how do we limit the the issue of families of illegal aliens coming into the country? Um, this is a, a demographic change in, you know, irregular migration that has taken place in the United States over the past 30 years. You know, in the 90s, it was more often than not single males who would come in from Mexico uh, to take jobs and they would either stay or they would go home um, and then they would just keep returning and whatnot. Uh, over the past few decades, that has largely changed. Uh, and especially in 2017, 2018 and 2019, it's changed to where entire families are coming. And, and you know, you have to think that unless something changes drastically, there's going to be another issue down the road where we have 
hundreds of thousands of illegal alien children. And the same arguments are going to be made by open borders activists. So, you know, what, what could we do to prevent this from happening in the future? I think, you know, one of the biggest issues is E-Verify has to be mandatory to turn off that jobs magnet. Um, but there's also, you know, kind of a, an issue of attrition through enforcement. There's a current case in law called Plyler versus Doe um, from 1982, um, which mandates that states uh, have to accommodate, you know, undocumented children in schools. They can't charge tuition to illegal alien children for attending publicly funded schools. And, you know, that's something that I really think as long as that's there, there's always going to be an incentive to bring children into the United States because it is more often than not a better life than where they're coming from. Um, and I kind of just wanted to gauge what y'all think about that um, in, in thinking about the future and what DACA 2.0 might look like, you know, 20 years down the road. Yeah, I, I think you definitely got to cut out the incentives, as you mentioned, um, even uh, some other items too, you know, a lot of states are granting driver's licenses or um, they're becoming sanctuary states or having sanctuary cities, which, you know, uh, prohibit the local and um, state law enforcement from cooperating with immigration authorities. And basically, if you're an illegal alien in these jurisdictions, you can't be deported. Um, there's universities uh, across the nation that are giving in-state tuition and scholarships to illegal aliens. So we have this culmination of all these perks, sometimes more perks given to Lewalians than native born, you know, American citizens. I mean, of course, anyone would want to come to this country. And so, like you said, you really got to cut out the incentives that drive people um, to cross into the country illegally, uh, you know, ramp up interior enforcement. Like I said, you know, ICE needs more resources uh, and funding to expand their bandwidth. Um, and then also I, I'd say for, I guess, a, a third item would be to beef up the border security. The Trump administration has completed 180 miles of border wall, um, but we still need more wall built. And I know it's not all his administration's fault whatsoever. A lot of these courts stymie him. He has a lot of activist groups against him. So it's it's been very difficult to get those 180 miles. Um, but if we continue to, to build that wall, um, I think we'll definitely see a, a decrease in illegal alien apprehensions. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, FAIR actually has an issue brief online that summarizes some of this uh, this part of the discussion about incentive versus determent quite well. It's called DACA, what you need to know. Real simple. Has a list of a lot of the incentives <laughs> there in place and some of the reforms that could be done to deter future illegal immigration so that we're not in this exact same place 5, 10, 15 years in the future. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. Fantastic commentary as always, guys. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and perhaps learned something new about DACA. Uh, join us next time. As a reminder, we'll be releasing a new episode every other Monday. Please recommend this podcast to your friends by sharing it on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, again, this is called Understanding Immigration. Uh, episodes are found on most platforms, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Uh, we also place the episodes on our website at fairus.org, and you'll see them on Twitter. Um, and our Twitter handle for that is at Fair Immigration. We hope everyone is staying safe during these times. Uh, and until next time, this has been Understanding Immigration presented by Fair.